Hey everyone, we just got wrapped up with our last uh, live stream, number 51 with Ray Pete, and we had tons of issues with bandwidth and the sound is kind of popping every so often. And so it's uh, extremely imperfect. And so it's not up to the quality of the other streams, unfortunately. I don't I don't even know what, what happened. I'm still going to try to figure it out. But I still obviously wanted to release the episode. I've stitched together some of the long silences unfortunately that happened during the show and at about 120 an hour and 22 minutes and also uh, hour and 34 minutes i had to stitch those together because there were a, a long periods of silence so here it is it's uh, again the quality is not amazing uh and again it's like popping throughout the whole episode but i thought it was really excellent otherwise and i thought we covered a lot of new ground so i hope you guys like it and uh yeah we'll try to do better next time okay talk to you guys soon and uh, uh here's the episode Okay, Georgie has a small window here. So guys, we're having a little bit of bandwidth problems, but we do have Mr. Raymond Pete, uh, Mr. Georgie Dinkov. Ray, how are you? Very good. <laughs> Georgie, how are you in your small, uh, low bandwidth box? Still still hanging in there, like <laughs> surrounded by the National Guard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have something to anchor this show in. And so Ray just wrote a fantastic newsletter, you know, Um uh, riffing on, on ideas that I, hew, uh, I hear few people talking about. So, Ray, your newest newsletter just came out a few days ago, if I'm not wrong, but is cumulative damage, degeneration, and aging possibilities of reversal. And it had a lot to do with the heat shock protein. So that was the part I was uh, vaguely familiar with. But maybe, uh, I don't know, do you, do you want to talk about just giving your motivation for writing it? Oh, it's part of the the general picture, uh, how to uh, understand uh, biology usefully, uh, uh, and the reductionist uh, breaking it up into parts. Uh, you can have an infinite amount of that kind of knowledge and never uh, be able to do anything with it. Uh, but if you uh, are uh, actually under the principle of how the organism works. Uh, uh, bacteria don't have any of our uh, ordinary analytic uh, abilities, but they uh, have uh, the, the intelligence and computational ability that lets them uh, redesign themselves radically uh, to meet a challenging environment. Uh, and uh, Barbara McClintock showed that uh, that same sort of thing, redesigning your genome happen, happens in plants. Uh, and uh, it should be obvious that if bacteria and plants can radically uh, pick themselves up and change themselves to uh, do better in the world, uh, there's no reason why uh, people should uh, feel that they're weighted down by uh, the horrible ballast of genes and inherited from uh, uh, reptiles or whatever. Uh, and and uh, the factors of this uh, simplifying picture are uh, the, the physics uh, of phase change, uh, 
essentially what Gilbert Ling was talking about, but what uh, uh, was a major movement early in the 20th century uh, for understanding the origin of life and uh, what life is uh, in, in its uh, uh, basis. Uh, and uh, that view that life is a substance uh, rather than uh, an accumulation of, of 20,000 uh, uh, independent pieces of, of DNA. Uh, that uh, idea of, of life as a substance, the substance, it, it can uh, change the phase in one direction of losing energy, or it can, with good luck, come back to a high energy state uh, because uh, all of the parts are subordinate to the flow of energy uh, uh, managed by the uh, the whole organism itself. And you talked about, I'm going to butcher his name, La Chatelier's principle. And um, and so the first, I don't know if this is related. I think it's related to Barbara McClintock. But a long time ago, maybe you had said that there uh, you read a paper or there was a situation where a cave of fish, fresh river fish, were diverted into a cave, and then over a period of time, they lost their eyes, became clear, and they basically adapted very quickly to their environment. But that that's along the lines of uh, Barbara McClintock's research, right? Like inborn capacity to change given a new novel or or even an inhospitable environment. That's uh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, the, the encyclopedias that I read as a kid. I reported those experiments. Uh, uh, the regular mainline encyclopedias uh, uh, included uh, the Lamarckist uh, uh, experiments. And uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, uh, there were still people doing experiments of that sort. Uh, previously, they had done them with uh, uh, various sea organisms and plants. Uh, hybridizing uh, plants by grafting uh, branches to them, uh, causing a, a change in the whole organism. Uh, these experiments with fruit flies, uh, uh, since fruit flies were the main organism uh, that the genetics uh, uh, dogma based itself on bacteria, uh, single-celled uh, organisms, and, and then finally fruit flies. Uh, the, the, two different kinds of experiments. Uh, one fed fruit flies a very high salt diet, uh, and that uh, they adaptively changed their cuticle uh, so that it wasn't irritated by the flow of, of salt in and out, that their anal scales were toughened up, and putting others under a, a very hot uh, artificial light uh, caused the, the wing structure to thicken up and get thick uh, veins. So these were strictly first-generation adaptation to a, a stressful environment. Then they turned off the light and gave them a, a normal salt diet, and crossbred them, and from then on, they could uh, have a, a Mendelian-like inheritance of these traits that they had never seen before. Uh, 
uh, in fruit flies. Uh, they sorted out generation after generation with the thickened scales uh, and the thickened veins in their wings. Uh, and uh, I asked uh, s several of my professors about that, and the standard uh, action was those were hidden genes. Uh, they were there all along, uh, and uh, once they expressed them, uh, then they were able uh, to continue expressing them. Uh, but uh, that is the uh, scientific method uh, genetics is based on. Uh, if it happens, then it must have uh, already been there in these immortal genes because nothing new happens. Uh, so, so it's uh, better than, than a, a deus ex machina. Uh, it's uh, saying that, well, we knew that already. Uh, uh, you, you didn't do anything except uh, we hadn't. Uh, uh, previously expressed that gene, but it's immortal and it's always been there. So to get into this, um, to get into the bulk of your newsletter about the heat shock proteins, you start off by talking about uh, Gilbert Ling, and I flip through his book again, and he's talking about ATP, the he what did it call that, the par excellence or the queen of cardinal adsorbents. So that's something that's helping with the or, or critical for the electron flow or pulling electrons through. The cell and doting to oxygen, and so that some uh, uh, the <laughs> ATP has to be um, uh, what's the right phrasing lost in the cell for this fa I, I, phase transition it, it, to happen. Uh, yeah, it, it. I mentioned that it functions as a protein solvent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so if you lower your energy and don't have uh, the ATP binding it and keeping the cell together, uh, some proteins. Uh, come out of solution and go into a, a different phase. Uh, and uh, so these uh, become uh, uh, stress-induced organelles. Uh, but uh, they always depend on the situation, the, the type of stress. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the way the protein comes out of solution when it, the cell is de-energized uh, is shaped uh, by the other factors acting on the the organism, and uh, the, the practical use of that idea uh, is uh, uh, something that has been noticed ever since experiments by, by St. Georgie that uh, ATP has a softening, uh, relaxing effect on isolated uh, uh, protein material from cells. Uh, exactly the idea of of uh, keeping everything together and in solution in the cytoplasm or the coacervate or the, the whole protoplasm. And in a fatigued muscle, for example, the muscle gets harder and harder. And when it's fully energized, the, the cytoplasm is flexible and soft, but can, uh, in a moment, contract and and do a, a maximum of work. Uh, like a fatigued heart gets harder and harder, uh, but on stimulation, it's already tight and uh, hardened, uh, and so it can't do uh, much more to become 
tighter. Uh, so the ATP functionally uh, uh, represents uh, the flow of energy, uh, carbon dioxide from produced from oxidizing glucose, for example. Uh, the the uh, uh, energized, uh, uh, well-nourished cell uh, is in a relaxed state, uh, and that has to do with insomnia, uh, muscle cramps, uh, uh, all, all the biological functions, uh, all the way down to uh, 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 cancer, for example. Uh, cancers can be adequately diagnosed just by their hardness. Uh, 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 doctors uh, have noticed that, that uh, if, if a lymph node is hard to the touch, it's going to look cancerous on the inside if they cut it open. Uh, but uh, uh, the hardness uh, in, involves first the inability to relax uh, and then the uh, uh, stabilization of a fibrous form uh, of actin, the, the, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, mobility-producing uh, 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 proteins of any sort of cell, uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, depleted energy turns on uh, uh, collagen synthesis, uh, and the actin, which is hardening the cell from the inside, uh, attaches to this growing uh, collagen uh, produ produced surround, uh, and and you get a, a system that is harder and harder the more energy depleted it is. Was St. George the person who did the experiments with injecting ATP into uh, dead animals and he showed that it reverses the uh, rigor mortis? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, rigor mortis is the phase change. Uh, and when you get smaller degrees of that phase change, then you get chronic things like uh, uh, intracellular uh, bodies that uh, uh, produce anything from arthritis like inflammation to dementia, formation of prions, proteins that are no longer soluble, becoming the mad cow or Alzheimer's agent. So this is happening, this precedes a cellular division, correct? Like when when a cell is ex extremely stressed out. Oh, oh, um, uh, yeah. Promoting cell division is uh, one of the uh, alternatives, uh, and um, you, you want to lose the complex energy uh, consuming cell functions, uh, thought and organization, and uh, secretion. All of the fancy specialized things cost energy mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to escape from whatever is causing uh, the, uh, the stress and the damage uh, turning uh, on the turning off the differentiated functions and resorting to a simple uh, cell division uh, uh, making new cells uh, hoping that they will survive uh, and overcome the environment. Uh, so the the hardening process uh, is uh, broken free of uh, by uh, activating the dedifferentiating 
cancer-producing uh, uh, property. Are you familiar with uh, some some studies uh, published, I think, in the 80s, showing that niacinamide is actually also a great uh, substance for increasing solubility of pretty much anything it gets uh, uh, caught dissolved with? Um, I saw some studies showing that if you administer, uh, if you mix niacinamide and let's say something very lipophilic like progesterone, it increases its solubility in water by a few thousand percent. Uh, and then they tried a few different substances, and niacinamide increased the solubility of, of many different proteins that weren't very soluble in, in water. So I'm wondering if, considering the, the, the similarity or, or the importance of niacinamide as an NAD precursor and, and the relationship with ATP, whether niacinamide can fill in for some of those um, um, some of those roles that ATP has a as a solubility increasing. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it does, uh, and uh, it's uh, a, able to uh, to stop the uh, energy loss. Uh, uh, it uh, turns off uh, some of the uh, deranged DNA repair mechanisms, uh, and uh, can can just let the cell die peacefully rather than draining tremendous amounts of energy. So it plugs the leak, uh, and uh, that. Uh, solubility thing, uh, it uh, uh, ha has all degrees uh, of uh, visibility. Uh, uh, about 1971 or two, I was experimenting uh, with uh, things like bread dough. I, I was making bread at the time, and uh, uh, the, the uh, relation of water retention to the bread dough is a big factor in the texture of the bread. And I was thinking of the bread dough as an analog for the cytoplasm. And what happens when the cytoplasm is energized and relaxed or stressed and tensed up. And I tried different stimulants and sedatives and found that uh, the free water content of, of, of barbiturate was one thing I tried. It made the dough slippery and wet because it was unable to hold the water in solution. And stimulants like caffeine, which also has a solubilizing effect on other substances, it made the uh, the dough bind water and retain more water, uh, so it could be uh, very uh, uh, humid, containing a lot of water, uh, and still not be wet and slippery. Would uh, gelatin have some of those effects as well? Increase the solubility of intracellular proteins? Uh, would which? Gelatin. Oh, oh. Um, it would probably depend on the starches present. Uh, one of the classical uh, uh, examples for, for studying coacervation uh, was to make uh, gelatin and gum arabic uh, starchy uh, molecule, uh, and they uh, uh, handle water uh, in, in different ways according to their proportion. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, gelatin is bound to run into uh, uh, things like R RNA and and uh, uh, polymer 
uh, carbohydrates that will uh, affect the the uh, water holding properties. And if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, an an excess of unpaired electrons, which is what happens when metabolism is impaired, would greatly inhibit the solubility of proteins inside the cell, right? Mm-hmm. So think, things that that that, that uh, accept those electrons, like quinones or other oxidizing agents, they should improve the solubility of proteins and retain the gelatin-like structure of the cell. Uh, uh, yeah, and that should involve a constant flow. Uh, the uh, when the uh, excess electrons are being drained away quickly enough, uh, that is the. Uh, the, the living state, it, it should be uh, constantly active with electrons uh, flowing uh, into the electron vacuum of, of oxygen. So some of those effects of estrogen on activating the heat shock proteins and decreasing the solubility of proteins in the cell, does that have to do with the, with the, with the activity of estrogen as a reductant? Uh, yep. Uh, uh, that's, that's its... Uh, molecular uh, structure, the phenolic structure, uh, uh, shifts the electrons uh, uh, away from oxidation and uh, changes the whole uh, water protein uh, system so that uh, while stopping oxygen energy production, it activates uh, the the enzymes that uh, govern glycolysis and lactic acid metabolism. And the role of progesterone as an inhibitor of HSP formation, is that a direct effect or is, does it more, or does it have more to do with the, with the opposition of, of uh, progesterone to estrogen's effects? Uh, it, it's direct action is probably on uh, proteins in general, uh, uh, not just a protein uh, uh, of progesterone receptor, but uh, it, it is apparently uh, effective on a, a great variety of proteins, uh, including the uh, cell division apparatus and uh, uh, motility and, and conductivity and so on. Uh, and it is one of the things that uh, helps the, the cell retain water under control. Uh, but uh, not uh, having the the wetting property uh, uh, where estrogen uh, releases uh, uh, water from proteins. It makes them swell up with bulk uh, inactive or or glycolysis-supporting water. Uh, Progesterone uh, uh, causes the the water to be bound into a solution uh, with the proteins, and uh, uh, exclude the free uh, uh, bulk water. But, um, maybe we'll back up just a second here. Do you, uh, because people in the health world, they say you should activate these heat shock proteins and like to sit in a sauna for hours or, or something to, and yet these help a person resist stress. And so how, how do you I, see it, that? Uh, that? That's true that they will help a cell uh, survive uh, partial cooking and so on. Uh, th- that's where the whole uh, idea of, of, uh, of them being strictly beneficial, uh, that they do help uh, survival of terrible conditions, uh, <laughs> like being 
uh, poisoned by germs or, or cooked by excess heat or, or uh, starved by uh, energy depletion. But uh, the drug companies uh, are uh, among the first to become aware that that process, de-energizing cells, uh, turning them towards the lactic acid, cancer-like or stress-like metabolism, uh, that the whole energy of the cell goes down as the life of the cell is saved by the heat shock proteins, its energy tends to revert to that uh, simple uh, cancer metabolism that loses the, the basic function of what the organism was trying to do. Uh, so the, the drug companies are uh, producing uh, chemicals that they hope will be non-toxic that will reverse the process knock out the heat shock proteins uh, and restore uh, cells, uh, bringing them back from the, the cancer or stress uh, metabolism. I might have not clipped it out of your newsletter, but didn't you say that the activation of this system, it was kind of like you'll never, uh, <laughs> I know there's a sticky uh, statement, but you'll never be the same again. Like you'll have stepped backward and the heat shock proteins will basically leave some kind of scar that that the the ability to generate energy won't ever be like it was before that activation is that does that make any sense uh, uh, that that's the general uh, line uh, of aging uh, that it it's like a ratchet that uh, keeps you alive for the moment but each time it uh, is called on uh, for that short-term survival, uh, it uh, reduces your flexibility, uh, just like a scar. Uh, it, it plugs the hole, but it limits function. Uh, but the, oh, so the, if you uh, get uh, your, your attention on the uh, a whole uh, 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 coacervate-like uh, quality of the organism, uh, getting uh, rid of uh, that high quantity of, of heat shock proteins at the same time that you're uh, energizing the whole cell. Uh, and it happens that progesterone uh, has uh, uh, many layers of, of functions blocking uh, and, and reverting uh, uh, away from the heat shock uh, state uh, and uh, activating the right kind of uh, energy production, suppressing uh, lactic acid uh, metabolism, uh, antagonizing estrogen, uh, blocking collagen production. Uh, all of the levels uh, happen to be touched on by progesterone. Um, I wanted to make a, a, a point that uh, you mentioned the heat shock protein 70 and uh, the involvement of estrogen and nitric oxide in activating it. But uh, there's there's a, there are a lot of studies showing that uh, uh, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is actually just as potent. Uh, and cortisol specifically, not only it increases the production of of this protein, but actually that protein is required for cortisol to bind to the recept its receptor and and cause all of the downstream effects that exist. So it seems that any type of stress, not just heat, is capable of activating or increasing the synthesis of these heat, heat shock proteins. Um, De-energizing de the cell, 
Exactly. So, so I guess it's a bit of a misnomer to call them heat shock proteins. They're more like stress shock proteins or just shock proteins in general. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they uh, block the disorganizing uh, factors that come from uh, everything that de-energizes the cell. So, if I'm if I understand correctly, any event that the organism is exposed to that demands uh, production of energy to deal with, which is really any event in life, if the energy production is not sufficient to meet the demand, um, then the heat shock proteins will get activated. So, in other words, aging occurs every time there is a there is a demand on us placed by the environment that we cannot meet up energetically. Uh, yep, uh, and uh, if you. Uh, pay attention during stress. Uh, you you can learn to see uh, uh, the, the uh, taste in your mouth uh, and the uh, odor of expired air through your nose, for example. Uh, you can tell when uh, the energy uh, supply is is under stress, uh, and basically, uh, age, aging is happening when when you see these signs and. Uh, the, uh, for example, if you stay in a hot bath too long, uh, you, you start getting uh, weak and feeling stress. Uh, and right. uh, at an extreme, you can get a metallic taste in your mouth and a, 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 a dry, uh, odd odor in, in your exhaled breath. And you, you realize that if you have a, a pint of orange juice or so, you can stop those processes and and get things working again. Uh, what's that metallic taste in the mouth due to? Is it is it truly because there's some there's some metal that's getting unbound from cells uh, and like uh, yeah? No, it's it's just lipid peroxidation when the free fatty acids uh, reach a certain point. Uh, uh, anything uh, uh, available as a catalyst will will start lipid peroxidation, and since metals. Because uh, we associate that taste with uh, metals, uh, but you don't need the metal because it's the lipid peroxides you're tasting. So, if your bread starts smelling like ketones or ammonia, all of these are also signs that you've overstressed yourself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we already talked about estrogen increasing the heat shock proteins. Um, just going back to an old uh, email that you and I uh, had, right? You said. Estrogen, hyperventilation, lactate, et cetera, increases serotonin. I think it's serotonin that directly increases parathyroid hormone, and then parathyroid hormone increases nitric oxide. So the heat shock proteins are just happening under all of that. Is that right? Or it's like a like a more of a secondary messenger type of situation? Uh, um, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, it, there are so many of these pathways <laughs> towards death that uh, the, the each pathway gives you mental confirmation, but the fact is they're all happening at the same time because it isn't being run by a cascade of signals acting on receptors. It's the phase change is happening. Mm-hmm. Well, like like a phase change of the entire organism mediated yeah. by each cell. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in that coacert, coacervate, uh, um, that's that's like a mini cancer. Like the 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 whole the cell is no longer a whole, and it's kind of dividing up into subgroups. Is that is that the way you see it? Uh, um, uh, oh, oh, the um, 
yeah, it's part of uh, normal uh, adaptation for uh, the, the cytoplasm to uh, differentiate according to challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when the de-energizing is uh, extreme, you get things like the prions uh, forms that, that can start uh, real degeneration, cancer and, and dementia and so on. But ordinarily, uh, uh, any little pressure can cause the uh, uh, quality of the coacervate to change accordingly and usefully. And that's what's happening uh, when bacteria do that. Uh, the reorganization of their genes, uh, it isn't that they have a, a messenger service that has the address of the gene that they, <laughs> uh, they send in after having uh, computed which gene they need to meet the environmental stress, but it's that the, uh, the, the whole system is, is such that uh, the, the uh, genetic resources uh, are uh, always in touch uh, with the uh, problem situation. Uh, and uh, so the, the phase change uh, 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 occurs according to a, a schedule of real-world prob- probability. Uh, and uh, the, the, those small perturbations are, are really uh, like the organism's uh, holistic way of doing calculations. And during that process, it would be the cell would be especially susceptible to vaccine or viral NRNA, RNA, polyethylene glycol, carrageenan, et cetera. Uh, yeah, the fatigued state is a degree of the inflamed state. And the, uh, the one of the deranged things related to the genetic. Uh, causation uh, doctrine is the idea uh, of the cell surface membrane as being a barrier. Uh, but uh, if you think of it being nothing but uh, the the end of the coacervate of the cell and the beginning of the extracellular world, uh, the state of energy of the the coacervate or uh, the degree of water protein uh, uh, solubility of the, the cell as a whole. Uh, uh, the, the barrier function uh, on the microscopic level that Gilbert Ling talks about, uh, it's a, a phase uh, uh, governed uh, a selectivity, not, not a pore governed. Uh, the, the idea that uh, you can let in a small, uh, uh, moderately water-free potassium ions uh, to the energized cell uh, and exclude the hydrated, bigger sodium uh, ions, uh, that's uh, the idea that there's a barrier. Uh, but uh, the, the drug companies have uh, taken advantage of that and uh, convinced researchers that <clears throat> to get certain drugs or big molecules into cells, uh, they need to buy a, a certain uh, uh, delivery or targeting 
molecule, uh, like the vaccine, uh, the current RNA vaccine uh, has lipids that are actually uh, functioning as as inflammation promoting promoting adjuvants, uh, but uh, they're uh, being uh, advertised as uh, delivery agents for the nucleic acid. Uh, supposedly, the strip of RNA is is so big it can't get across the barrier membrane unless it's enclosed in these targeting specific uh, lipids. But uh, when uh, one group of researchers was uh, genetically modifying uh, uh, cells, uh, they would uh, buy the targeting agent and put their uh, stretch of, of a big DNA molecule uh, into this uh, targeting lipid. And as a control for how successful uh, the genetic change was taking up uh, the targeted DNA, they introduced bare, naked uh, stretches of the same DNA. And they found they went into cells even easier uh, than the targeted uh, 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 piece of DNA. Uh, the, the cells, uh, ordinary cells, uh, can uh, uh, take up or, or dissolve uh, uh, DNA from the environment. So, so what you eat, a certain amount of the DNA is getting into your uh, lymphatic and, and blood uh, circulation and uh, cells have the option of uh, taking up whole genetic stretches of information uh, if, if, if the cell judges uh, it can be helpful. Uh, uh, so the the idea of, of the cell uh, state, the inflammatory state, uh, it, it's really uh, the cell that is already stressed de-energized and inflamed is an obvious target for a, a virus. The virus doesn't have to necessarily have clever uh, attaching uh, machinery and enzymes. It, it can just fall into a, a weakened uh, cell uh, just, just because uh, the, the cell is relatively water-soluble. And you've described that before as just a general leakiness, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in your newsletter, you say the drug companies are creating a variety of uh, heat shock protein inhibitors. And you said that uh, also before, but like I imagine minocycline or the tetracyclines in general and progesterone, those are drugs that already exist that probably do that, right? Uh, yeah. Medellin Blue is also another extremely potent one specifically for heat shock protein 70. <laughs> um, thanks for that, Georgie. Uh, Ray, it's, I don't know how related this question is, but uh, the idea of of incorporating things like milk and cheese and uh, vitamin D and vitamin K to to lower parathyroid hormone, it, do you see that as a, a newer part of the system and thus suppressing it can help um, turn off a lot of these older aspects of the system, like the prolactin, the serotonin, et cetera? Well, there are different layers, uh, and probably uh, most important uh, uh, to uh, an organism with a big skeleton. Uh, but I, I think analogs of parathyroid hormone go way back 
in the different evolutionary levels. I don't remember uh, where it starts, but uh, I, I think it's something analogous uh, is uh, 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 um, very early uh, part of the systems. But the the parathyroid glands being, uh, I mean, you correct me, but in such close proximity to the thyroid, did, did that mean they evolved at the same time? Not necessarily, but uh, probably uh, they uh, have uh, very contrary uh, functions. And so uh, maybe it's like uh, being close so they uh, know what each other is doing. <laughs> and then a uh, similar question, uh, but the renin-angiotensin system, is that even more ancient than our uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis? I think it is. Uh, those are things you can look up uh, the phylogeny of hormones. Uh, a lot of people have seen how far back you can find the molecule. Great stuff. I was going to do an advertisement, Georgie, unless you have uh, some questions. Uh, no. no, keep going. <laughs> okay, so uh, we jumped right into it, but I just wanted to say that we are reading from uh, Ray Pete's newsletter. And so, uh, Ray, can you just let everybody know how they can obtain your newsletter? Uh, oh, uh, Ray Pete's with an S uh, newsletter at uh, uh, gmail.com. Uh, they can give you information. And then this. It, it's $28 for. 12 issues over two years. And then uh, the same situation for your books. So you can email that same address. And is, are, when you looked at these prices, were those right for the digital copies? Uh, no, I, I think it's much lower for the digital. I don't remember how much it is. That's what I thought. Um, so you can get Ray's books in a digital format. And then I wanted to talk about Progestee from Kinogen. <laughs> and so... Uh, this is the progesterone I've been using for a, a long, long time. I, I email uh, Catherine at Kenogen at Gmail. And Ray, you had mentioned other people that you thought you were confident in this in this product. And is there anything you want to say about it? Oh, um, I, I've used it for uh, uh, 45 years or so myself after uh, researching it in animals. Uh, but uh, uh, I finally got interested in in how people could use it, and so I uh, experimented with what the uh, safe and effective solvents uh, were, uh, and that that was how I came up with the uh, Progestee complex formula uh, in the uh, 1970s, uh, and I uh, tried it out on all my friends and pets and such. Uh, like a, a roommate's uh, pet rabbit had a brain tumor and had reached the point uh, that it couldn't uh, couldn't hop, couldn't stay standing up if it tried to hop. Uh, so, uh, and when I was blind, uh, the the vet had said it was uh, uh, beyond uh, help. Couldn't couldn't even uh, uh, do its basic functions. Uh, and so my friend uh, said, uh, oh, okay, uh, try try your progesterone. Uh, and I, I rubbed the uh, oily solution uh, on the relatively bare skin inside both of its ears. Uh, so it was really a, a huge dose, uh, 
because of the size of the ears. And uh, uh, it, uh, I, I had uh, uh, tried uh, setting it up, and, and uh, previously it had, had just fallen over. Uh, this time it fell over uh, and went into a deep sleep. Uh, I, I came back uh, uh, two or three hours later. Uh, my friend thought I had killed the rabbit. It was so <laughs> stretched out and relaxed. Uh, but uh, when I approached it, uh, it leaped to its feet uh, like a new rabbit. <laughs> and and uh, uh, the, the uh, first uh, thing it did uh, was to uh, 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 hop straight ahead and uh, came came to a wall and stopped and copiously uh, urinated uh, and uh, apparently it, it was uh, uh, unloading some uh, large amount of, of water that had been uh, uh, causing uh, swelling and pressure and so on uh, and uh, after that it could uh, happen to everything uh, rabbits normally do turn corners quickly and so on I have a, a, a picture of, I think it's from Hans Selye's 1947 uh, textbook of endocrinology. Was that the name of it? Any, anyways, it's the one that you talked about where the guy has the rat and he's picked it up and he thinks yeah. it's dead, but it's just uh, really, really, really relaxed. And so exactly what you said about the rabbit. Yeah, yeah it look, looks like a wet dish rig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I have a question. Why would progesterone be able to fill in for the function of the adrenal glands that were removed, but but, but pregnenolone wouldn't? Um, I think Silas' uh, experiment showed that uh, maybe about twenty percent of the rats would survive if you give them pregnenolone, um, compared to like the hundred percent if you inject them with cortisone, and maybe eighty percent if you inject them with progesterone. But pregnenolone didn't have that uh, that uh, adrenocortical effect. Uh, yeah, Hans Selye uh, uh, showed that each of the steroids uh, has a, a range of properties, uh, and uh, uh, aldosterone has uh, uh, its estrogen-resembling uh, and anti-androgenic properties. Each each one has a range, uh, and it just turns out that progesterone will fill in for a deficiency of aldosterone or, or cortisol or androgen, but it will also protect against an excess toxic dose of those same things because it, it has a weak mineralocorticoid effect that, that makes up for the absence of aldosterone as well as a toxic excess. Uh, and uh, the, the same thing, testosterone has uh, uh, progesterone-sustaining, uh, pregnancy-sustaining uh, effects if you give it uh, uh, to, to a pregnant animal, uh, but uh, it's not nearly as effective at that uh, purpose as progesterone is. Uh, and uh, uh, the estrogen is the uh, thing that it's, uh, strictly antagonistic to. Uh, it, it will have some of the anti-inflammatory properties of cortisol, uh, as well as uh, being a major uh, protector against uh, excess cortisol poisoning. 
and it does a lot of those things uh, on the enzyme level as well as the so-called receptor level. Uh, When when you look at a list of its uh, actions, uh, coordinated effects on both receptors of all sorts uh, and uh, uh, enzyme activation changes, you you would think it was a, a magical invention. <laughs> it's so extremely complex but organized. And I mean, judging from the studies, the few studies that were done have been done on pregnenolone in comparison to progesterone. The pregnenolone seems to have more of a structure stabilizing effect, not so much hormonal effect. Is that right? Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's true of both pregnenolone and progesterone. I, I don't think of either of them as a hormone. Uh, and the uh, the FDA, uh, f- at least for 50 years, uh, classified pregnenolone as a non-hormonal steroid. Uh, I, I include uh, progesterone in that category, non-hormonal, because it's, uh, 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 when you look at everything it's, it's doing, it's uh, stabilizing the energy and structural systems. Uh, stabilization uh, is so different from uh, hormonal excitation and activation. just doesn't fit uh, the word. I want- so maybe we should call, classify the, the steroids into pro- and anti-metabolic lipids, right? Because they are lipids, after all. Uh, yeah. I want to uh, talk about uh, androgens, actually, but uh, one last question about progestee. If somebody has a very sensitive stomach, but they want to take it orally, have, have there been any ways that you've found that can get a person around that and maybe uh, not, not irritate them? Yeah, a large amount of uh, vitamin E taken orally. Uh, if you have a sensitive gallbladder or something, uh, that sticky oil uh, make, creates nausea, gagging, uh, all, all kinds of uh, digestive reactions, but if you mix it with butter, for example, uh, and uh, uh, take it with a, a, a baked potato or, or or some food, you don't even notice it. Good stuff. Okay, so Georgie and I uh, f- last two weeks have been talking about DHT, and then somebody emailed me and left a few comments <laughs> saying we were taking you out of context, and so I had to go back and listen to. Um, some of our previous conversations. And there was one that I never really listened to again because the audio quality was so bad. But I mean, you were explicitly clear, Ray, in kind of your thoughts about uh, DHT. I won't read the whole quote, but it's like, in general, things like that are not to be messed with unless you have a very specific knowledge of a deficiency because if you take a little too much and, and any of those defining feature-creating hormones can change the whole system in an unpredictable way. Um, yeah, every, everything you do practically... Uh, changes uh, uh, a million things about the organism. Uh, and uh, the, the known effects, if someone is dying of cancer, uh, obviously uh, you don't worry about uh, uh, what it's going to do to their <laughs> sex life in five years. Well, where, where, uh, so again, just your general thoughts and your experience, uh, experience, like I talked to a lot of guys, obviously that have taken, uh, finasteride and feel like they're 
they're really never going to be the same again. And then also I talked to a lot of people with uh, gynecomastia. And so, uh, so again, given yeah. that they're exploring thyroid, vitamin D, good nutrition, uh, bowel disinfectants and things like, where do you think either testosterone or DHT can play a helpful role? Uh, if you see the problem uh, as uh, energy depletion and inflammation, uh, uh, that sort of change, uh, then uh, you, you will take into account uh, thyroid, carbon dioxide, uh, uh, glucose, uh, uh, the balance of amino acids in your proteins, uh, uh, cutting, cutting proteins that contain uh, methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan, uh, uh, sub supplementing instead uh, some gelatin, uh, all of the anti-inflammatory things, uh, and uh, aspirin, coffee or caffeine, uh, and progesterone uh, are, are very uh, effective stabilizing, uh, energy-restoring, uh, anti-inflammatory things that, that help all of those. But uh, I think it's important to, uh, to, to think of those as a, a deviation uh, uh, from, from the... Uh, proper functions of the organism and, and look to restoring uh, the, the uh, energized, uh, uninflamed, but uh, purposeful uh, uh, processes of the organism. Uh, and uh, a lot of that is uh, getting your attention uh, away from uh, the medicalization. Uh, uh, people uh, can, can uh, get so interested in uh, that particular problem, uh, the phenosteroid syndrome or, mm -hmm. or whatever, or mm -hmm. a post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that, that they uh, uh, forget what it is they're doing uh, in their life. Uh, and uh, if they can uh, get, get the sense uh, of excitement and play uh, as a governing uh, principle of their activities, and uh, uh, start uh, imagining uh, the constructive anti-inflammatory energy-restoring things uh, rather than uh, trying to work out uh, the, the thousands of details uh, of uh, what particular substance uh, uh, would be most effective. So you're saying that um, since the the ceiling on even something like coffee or aspirin or other anti-inflammatory um, therapies in a person's life, like a person could find uh, uh, it could take a long time to find the right dose of aspirin, you know, and, and that oh, should yeah. be explored before trying something like testosterone or DHT. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, along, but in in conjunction with. Uh, adequate sugar and the right protein uh, and uh, mixed nutrition uh, and uh, uh, feeling, feeling out the effects of uh, what the aspirin is doing because those, those hormonal effects uh, are uh, leaving uh, uh, the estrogen excitatory process in your brain, for example, uh, to dominate and that uh, tends to uh, create an obsessive uh, uh, process in the brain uh, where, where the others, uh, when you lose interest 
in uh, your particular health problem, uh, you're probably on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one question for me: if if a if a male were was to use uh, any of the endpoint androgens, um, let's say they have a severe deficiency of androgens and um, they tried corrected it, and they couldn't. Um, and if 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 they're at the point of using, let's say, testosterone, my question is: wouldn't it be less risky? to use the DHT given its non-ability to turn into estrogen? Uh, uh, yeah, um, definitely. It, it, uh, you know, there are clinics going up around the country uh, selling testosterone treatments, uh, and uh, the doses they give uh, are ridiculous, uh, <laughs> 50 or 100 milligrams at a time, for example, uh, where uh, uh, a healthy young male uh, may makes maybe four or five milligrams a day uh, and uh, maybe 10 or 15 milligrams of DHEA per day. Uh, if you uh, take, for example, one milligram of, of uh, DHT and back it up uh, with a few milligrams of DHEA uh, and progesterone, uh, aspirin, uh, coffee, uh, uh, a uh, uh, steady supply of, of sugar and related nutrients, uh, uh, then uh, the, the DHT uh, is more, more likely to have a constructive uh, repairing role. Well, I will let the cat out of the bag a little bit. So I've been experimenting a little bit with DHT and, and I, I would say, and, I, and I'm not above the idea that it could be harmful in the long run, but it, de it definitely seems to have a neutralizing effect on the nervous system. And so would... Uh, yeah, anti-inflammatory is okay. what yeah. it's doing beneficially. Um, in my experience, nothing terminates a severe stress reaction for me like a few milligrams of DHT. But my experience is that it's not something that can be used on an ongoing basis um, without interruption. It's more like the you know the emergency fix when you're really in trouble and and you know uh, you don't feel like taking three grams of aspirin or or you don't have them with you. Uh, the DHT works in minutes like a charm. But Ray, I definitely don't want to mischaracterize. You're saying there's a hundred other things to check before before doing that, right? Uh, yeah, uh, just because it, it makes you feel so good that you're uh, going to get stuck on that with if you don't f fix the whole uh, energy system that uh, started the whole process. Yeah, that uh, yeah, that's definitely in the back of my brain that there's there's something else that needs correction. So. Speaking of aspirin, uh, something I was interested in, uh, what do you consider like a max dose of aspirin at a single time? For example, I know when I've tried a gram or two grams, it, it seems to have like a hypoglycemic effect after a while. And so is there an amount that you feel comfortable with taking at one time? I have taken uh, as much as a gram, uh, but uh, uh, you have to... Um be familiar with it. Uh, uh, I, I think usually uh, 300 to 500 milligrams at a time uh, with food uh, is uh, uh, safe and comfortable. Uh, and you can repeat that amount uh, uh, usually very safely. 
Good stuff, Georgie. Uh, interrupt me at any time. I was just going to go through these questions. And then, you know, we, we have a bunch of uh, reader questions, too, so we can go and Just go to uh, uh, expand on the hypoglycemic effect, in higher doses, aspirin depletes the uh, amino acid L-carnitine um, and, and starts to work very similarly to the drug meldonium. Um, so if you take more than, I don't know, I guess it, it depends for each person, but I think over a gram or two grams, um, it basically uh, inhibits significantly the oxidation of fat to cause, uh, you know, a drop in blood sugar. So I, I would certainly take it with something sweet if you're taking higher doses. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, great stuff. Okay, so Ray, a few days ago, I posted on my Instagram about uh, mushrooms, and then I was instantly, uh, I got a lot of questions about a garotene, and I couldn't answer them. So <laughs> I thought I might ask you. Uh, but anyways, what exactly is happening to the agaritine because maybe in an older email from a few years ago you sent somebody something that said it was like changed from not being harmful to maybe being helpful but it's entirely possible that i misinterpreted what you said to him um no i don't remember what i said but okay so when you're cooking the mushrooms for three hours are you getting rid of the agaritine like it's escaping in the cooking process yeah yeah Uh, yeah uh, e- either it's turned into something uh, uh, very different or it just vaporizes. And then uh, a lot of people were, uh, and again, I know you've talked about this already, but the water doesn't contain the the agaritine after a few hours. Uh, uh, no. Okay. Looking at the structure, it looks like it's, it will be highly estrogenic, that agaritine thing. Is, have you seen something um, on that, Ray? Um, if it has any estrogenic effects, aside from being labeled as a carcinogen? Uh, no, no, I haven't. And speaking of uh, fungus, uh, Ray, is there any way to distinguish between a fungal and bacterial infection? Because from what I've read, they seem extremely similar. Uh, fungus is a nucleated cell uh, that... Uh, work so much like a human cell uh, that uh, the poisons they have for treating them uh, happen to knock out our own mitochondria because they're generally uh, uh, intended to knock out the fungus mitochondrian energy system. Uh, And uh, so the uh, people who are convinced they have uh, systemic uh, fungal infection uh, will take those uh, toxic drugs uh, for a long time and, and get worse and worse and and think it's the fungus that's responsible and it's really the uh, drug knocking out their mitochondria. Uh, and uh, bacterial uh, infections, uh, if they reach your, your bloodstream, uh, they can quickly uh, become uh, uh, deadly and a good strong dose of antibiotics uh, gets into your bloodstream uh, and will take care of, of systemic uh, uh, bacterial infection. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, once a fungus actually gets into your bloodstream, uh, I think uh, a person might have something like a week to live uh, because there are no no really effective, safe uh, drugs once you have a, an actual systemic fungal infection. It can linger in your lungs, but uh, not getting into your bloodstream. Uh, So it can damage the lungs over a period of years. But if it was actually 
a systemic infection like many people are told that uh, Candida uh, does, but uh, that's all just uh, uh, selling treatment that goes on forever. What would be some signs slash symptoms of having a starting to develop a systemic fungal infection? Uh, oh, uh, uh, extreme, extreme sickness. Uh, uh, it uh, grows so fast because uh, uh, it has everything it needs in the blood, uh, and and there's uh, no no good. Uh, 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 immune defense once it gets in the bloodstream. Uh, the, the, uh, pe- people uh, with a very weak immune system uh, can live for years with it uh, uh, thriving in their small intestine and even stomach uh, 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 so that yeast can, can grow uh, high enough up that, that you can make alcohol uh, when you uh, eat carbohydrate because the yeast will uh, ferment it uh, right in your stomach and small intestine. Uh, but uh, that, that isn't uh, re- reaching the bloodstream. So for people with this intestinally bound fungal infection, what is it that they can do? I mean, uh, 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 should uh, they be taking the drug or like are they nutritive options? Uh, uh, yeah, um, one thing is not to starve the yeast, uh, because uh, if you know what happens if you've baked bread, uh, when the yeast runs out of sugar from breaking down starch, it starts attacking the proteins, and you get a very stinky uh, batch of dough. Yeah, uh, and that same thing happens that. The yeast that starved for sugar uh, changes radically and uh, becomes very invasive and toxic and destructive. Uh, so, uh, not uh, taking a, 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 the, the very popular uh, no sugar diet approach. Uh, fiber uh, to accelerate your intestine, uh, thyroid to improve the uh, acid production uh, and uh, enzyme production and peristalsis uh, stimulated uh, by fiber in the diet uh, will uh, Im- increase the uh, uh, resistance uh, to, to the growth of the uh, fungus and uh, should eventually, uh, over a period of several days, uh, clean out and disinfect your small intestine. What about things like coconut oil? Like the ones that have, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, the oils, uh, uh, coconut or, or uh, olive oil, uh, are both uh, bacteria-killing and uh, fungicidal. Uh, and uh, uh, some people have used uh, uh, olive oil uh, doses uh, for H. pylori in their stomach, for example. But it, it also helps to uh, uh, suppress it in, in the small intestine. Uh, that that's the idea of having it a little bit of it with a, a shredded carrot. Uh, the, the carrot itself it has some antifungal uh, I- ingredients, uh, and combined with a, a touch of vinegar and olive oil, uh, it's disinfecting your your intestine while stimulating it. 
Or is there any specific fatty acid in olive oil that's responsible for this, or some of the other components that are that are present in the actual olive fruit? Uh, all of the uh, saturated fatty acids uh, are uh, uh, fairly germicidal. Uh, I just forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> um, uh, I was going to ask you about the olive oil, but you, you think um, would you like prefer that over coconut oil uh, for kind of a, a disinfectant effect, Bray? I think I would. And so even with the daily keeping the PUFA as low as possible, it would be worth it to find a, high, a very pure olive oil to use every day, maybe on the mushrooms or the carrot? Um, uh, yeah, and it tastes the best, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the FDA, or Department of Agriculture, uh, years ago did a survey and found, I think it was 70% of the olive oil sold in the U.S. was fraudulent, mm-hmm, contaminated mm-hmm. with yeah. canola or some other oil. How much olive oil are we talking here? Like what, what te- uh, a fourth a teaspoon or something? Uh, oh, oh uh, yeah, half a teaspoon mm-hmm. is, is okay. It just gives you a trace of poofa. The question I forgot was, from what I gather from what you're saying, is that uh, – a fungal infection is going to be a lot more rare than just a bacterial fe- infection. Is that right? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. It, once it gets into your tissues like the lungs or, or the skin or toenails, it's very hard to get rid of because it's so closely uh, uh, structurally and functionally uh, similar to human cells. And then one one last question, then we can move on to um, reader or viewer questions. Um, I have I have oh, one oh, related as well. Well, one, uh, yeah, go go ahead with yours. <laughs> you mentioned H. pylori. That's is pretty common in low thyroid people, and so mm-hmm. in addition to the vitamin D and getting in the carrot salad or the mushrooms, uh, I think maybe you specifically identified uh, a, a tetracycline and a oh man, maybe you said a macrolide and a penicillin. You thought that was kind of a, a yep. useful therapy yep. for that. All of those have been uh, tried and proven effective. For like two or three weeks, not just taking it for a few days? Uh, uh, yeah, just to be sure. And then a question, I'm sorry, George, <laughs> the question I get all the time is like in, I had uh, uh, gathered a bunch of your responses of how you used antibiotics yourself. And so you had mentioned, the, oh, when, in the past, uh, I'd use it for a day or two until the symptom was gone. But if somebody has like an outright infection, that might not be long enough to get rid of the infection? Um, if, if you are watching the, the symptoms of the infection, um, uh, the first uh, uh, dose you take, uh, uh, like 250 milligrams of penicillin, uh, you might not feel anything. Uh, take another dose four hours later. And at some point, a second or third dose, you usually feel a, a sudden a subsiding of the symptoms. Uh, and uh, with the third or fourth dose, the, the symptoms of the infection are often gone. Uh, but uh, I think it's a good idea to uh, taper off, take uh, them at maybe at eight hours intervals for the, for the next uh, day or so. And, and the, uh, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I was just make, just making sure that the symptoms 
are noticeably subsiding and, and then disappearing and that they don't come back. But like uh, chronic gas or diarrhea or, or things like that, that would be more of a serious type of that. You, a person could guess they probably had something worse than just a, a mild endotoxin problem or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah. If it's a fungus producing gas, the penicillin isn't going to do much. Mm. Uh, and uh, flowers of sulfur uh, and fibers uh, uh, and thyroid uh, are the way to get your digestive system uh, active. The flowers of sulfur uh, are, are turned by fungus. Uh, they have exoenzymes that uh, act to reduce the uh, uh, sulfane form of the sulfur producing hydrogen sulfide, which is toxic to them. Uh, so th they produce their own toxic uh, form of sulfur, but it's local. Uh, and uh, you might, uh, uh, for, for uh, a few hours, you might smell like hydrogen sulfide if you have a lot of fungus. Uh, but uh, that's what's killing the fungus. Uh, and so it's a very safe way to uh, uh, get rid of intestinal uh, uh, fungus. A couple of questions regards to antibiotics. As you know, Ray, uh, most doctors, if they put you on antibiotic, they'll say you have to take it for two weeks or 10 days or two weeks. And usually it's, usually it's about two weeks. Is there any good evidence behind the recommendation or is it purely ideological? Uh, uh, yeah, a few studies found uh, that uh, it, it, uh, the, the infection could uh, linger uh, and that there would be spores uh, that uh, if you stopped it after uh, four or five days, whenever the symptoms were gone, uh, the spores uh, could germinate uh, after 10 days or so. Uh, and uh, so what they're doing is is killing the second effect uh, infection uh, uh, with the first prescription. Uh, they're, they're just taking account of of the possibilities of of uh, uh, the, the spore being a, a return of the infection. Okay, and related to that, antibiotic resistance, which has been blown out of proportion, in my opinion, it's a huge topic right now. Everybody's working on the latest and greatest, newest antibiotic. How much truth do you think there is to that, that if you use an antibiotic repeatedly, the bacteria will become resistant to it and it will no longer be effective? On a population basis, uh, that happens. Uh, that, that's where the resistant bacteria come from. Uh, hospitals uh, do it so consistently, they breed their own toxic resistant strain. Uh, but uh, one person, uh, it just doesn't happen. And then what about the claims that if you use antibiotics, even sporadically, but but continuously, um, you will eventually give yourself a fungal overgrowth because the fungus is opportunistic, and when you kill off the bacteria, the fungus will take over. Is there any, tr any truth to that? Yeah, that famously happens uh, with the heavy two-week uh, program that's so commonly prescribed. Uh, uh, they can uh, really sterilize your intestine, uh, but uh, uh, without paying attention to your uh, hormones that govern uh, the digestive enzymes, uh, a sterile uh, intestine uh, 
uh, uh, which isn't digesting properly, uh, is a good place uh, for fungus to take root. Uh, so you uh, you want to make sure if you really sterilize your intestine uh, that you're uh, taking into account the things that uh, will restore uh, secretion of stomach acid, pancreatic enzymes, uh, and uh, of, uh, mucus production, uh, everything that takes energy to produce. Um, so would it be a good idea then if somebody's using antibiotic just to throw in a bit of uh, flowers of sulfur just in case, just to not to give the, the fungus the opportunity to immediately overgrow? Uh, if they're going to take uh, such a gigantic dose as doctors uh, usually prescribe. Okay. And then specifically to the tetracycline family of antibiotics, all of these molecules are quinones. And all quinones have antifungal effect as well. Would those be... Um, do you think that that may be true of the tetracyclines? I'm just going by. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's even used in in trees and such uh, for fungal infections, uh, uh, and at the same time, it's anti-inflammatory, and inflammation uh, predisposes to all kinds of infection, uh, and so uh, I, the tetracyclines. Uh, I think their major effect might be the uh, anti-inflammation. Uh, uh, the, the medical world uh, uh, reacted uh, to, to the suggestion that uh, azithromycin uh, was part of the proper treatment uh, for the COVID virus, uh, but uh, because uh, they they saw it as a bacteria killer, not a a virus killer, but its anti-inflammatory effect is very powerful at uh, knocking out the symptoms of the virus infection. And by knocking out the symptoms of inflammation, that in itself creates a resistance to uh, the virus getting into your cells. Okay. And again, another question specific to the tetracyclines. Is there anything inherently irritating in, in those molecules that can irritate the GI, the, the intestinal tract for some people? Because I know some people react really badly to specifically that those type of antibiotics. Um, uh, yeah, any reaction that you have, uh, you should stop taking that one. Okay. Um, and specifically for minocycline, I think you uh, mentioned to uh, Danny once that it may inhibit the thyroid on, via what mechanism? I'm not sure, but uh, lots of people uh, get uh, very uh, uh, uncomfortable on just a, a moderate uh, dose of minocycline, even though it's theoretically very good and is being used to treat dementia and so on because of its anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, but some people just have to be very watchful because it doesn't do something they don't like. Can, can you go into that a little bit more? Because I've I feel like I've definitely experienced that. I yeah, I, I don't know what causes it exactly, but uh, I I've had uh, bad reactions to uh, uh, different uh, antibiotics that uh, I, it could have just been a, a batch effect, or, or it could be a peculiarity of my my system, uh, and uh, I I don't know of any studies that 
that, that explain why people have those uh, bad reactions. Uh, this is kind of related, but sometimes when I would take uh, like 50 milligrams of minocycline or something, I'd feel profoundly, I think Georgie just said this, but I feel like it was, I, I was hypothyroid. It made me hypothyroid, but it would also mitigate like a, a stomach problem. And so I would hypothesize like, oh, maybe it lowered nitric oxide or maybe lowered some stress hormone or something that was like keeping my structure together and lowering it made me kind of like look ugly uh, while also actually lowering the inflammation in my intestine. Does that make any sense at all? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, by, by reducing inflammation, uh, sometimes your stress hormones will uh, come back to normal. Uh, and uh, if you were experiencing good functioning from uh, abnormally high uh, adrenaline and cortisol, uh, when those are lowered by getting rid of the uh, inflammation, uh, then you feel a letdown mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and realize you were compensating for uh, something uh, like hypothyroidism uh, by uh, running high on adrenaline and and cortisol. Uh, not that you guys necessarily care. I think where our stream is like down, but I'm still recording the audio. <laughs> and so we just have to keep uh, rolling. I don't know what is going on because the, the stream health is good. It's just like the, the whole thing is glitchy and people are saying we're c c cutting in and out, but honestly, it doesn't matter. We're just because I'm still recording it. So, um, Georgie, did you have anything else on this topic? No, no, I, okay. that, that was all. Okay, thank you, Ray. Thank you, Georgie. Um, let's try playing a question because I'm just going to assume this is still still going. Uh, we, Solomon had one about testosterone. We kind of covered that. Uh, this one from John is about. Uh, oh, I won't. Um, so I'll leave it as a surprise. Okay, so let me hide this. Ray, you can hear everything. Okay, still. Yeah. Okay. Let me hide this. Okay, this one's from John. Hey. Oh, this is not going to work. Okay. <laughs> uh, dude, that was real, real glitchy. Choppy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, error. YouTube is not receiving enough video. This makes no sense. Okay. Let's try one more and see what happens. This one's from our brother Ozan. Ozan. Hello, Danny. Hello, Georgie. And hello, <laughs> Dr. Pete. This is Ozan. Uh, my question is about viruses. Uh, after investigating them over the past year a little deeper, like most people, um, I can't really see a reason why a virus would even want to invade a human cell, especially because wanting seems like something a living organism would do. So if a virus isn't alive, it seems as though we're attributing ideas to an inanimate object. Um, I'm kind of having a hard time seeing the advantages of a virus to inhabit a cell and duplicate itself. Um, because then we're implicating that it has the processes that are involved in making those type of decisions like a metabolism or energy production or, or, or digestion or reproduction. Um, and it doesn't seem to have any of those things. Uh, it more so seems like an RFID chip that a higher intelligence made and is then enabled by another higher organism than itself. Um, akin to exosomes being produced by our cells. Uh, viruses, to me at least, seem that way as opposed to what they're being um, 
propagated as, which is something that can have malicious intent, um, even though they're in quantities that are incomprehensible, that there, there's so many viruses. So um, if maybe Dr. Pete could kind of expand upon uh, this idea that viruses want to get into your cells as if they're like a parasite and you're the host, um, because I'm just not really seeing that relationship. Um, if anything, it seems akin to like horizontal gene transfer where there's a transfer of information happening um, between organisms. And I remember Dr. Pete. Able to take up uh, DNA, uh, even if it's foreign, uh, the exosomes are produced by our own cells under stress. Uh, and sometimes uh, they can uh, create a stress or a defect in other cells uh, but normally their function is to uh, uh, repair uh, and uh, uh, patch up uh, and uh, qu quit uh, uh, the processes that are, are causing the problem. So the exosomes normally uh, are part of our uh, maintenance uh, system. Uh, and uh, when uh, our system is, is sick, uh, then the exosomes can extend and spread that sickness uh, but uh, uh, the uh, uh, environment is full of of uh, uh, cell, cells that have decomposed for various reasons or, or pollen uh, that's deliberately uh, spread uh, by plants uh, we inhale pollen or eat it uh, and uh, that DNA gets into our system uh, and our cells have access to that uh, and uh, now and then uh, can absorb it. Uh, uh, people who have eaten certain kinds of algae, for example, uh, it turns out that uh, the algae DNA uh, can be found in their own cells, in the human brain cells, for example. Uh, and uh, the, the few labs that have looked for those effects uh, find that it isn't uh, that uncommon. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, I think it's the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, part of MIT, Harvard, uh, a, a group there uh, did a study on the uh, RNA virus used in the vaccine uh, and uh, on human cells in vitro. They showed that uh, cells uh, not only uh, can take it up and use it in the cytoplasm, but their reverse transcriptases can yeah. integrate it into the DNA, DNA genome. Uh, and uh, if you uh, question uh, how these complex systems, uh, large stretches of DNA or RNA uh, surrounded by uh, proteins and lipids, how the virus came into existence, uh, naturally a, a, a higher intelligence was responsible. Uh, animals and plants uh, with their uh, repair systems are uh, always packaging uh, some of their uh, DNA, RNA, and proteins into exosomes uh, for their own maintenance. Uh, and if these get into the environment, uh, uh, probably uh, as food of other organisms as well as uh, things drifting in the air like pollen. 
but uh, uh, this uh, horizontal uh, transfer of genetic information, uh, bacteria uh, do it as, as a routine thing. Uh, they, they mutate in the right direction and make a little exosome uh, uh, to transmit uh, that DNA uh, to uh, not only their uh, same species, but even different species. Uh, so that they're usefully and protectively uh, d doing a, a DNA transfer, uh, which is like uh, passing a good virus or a good exosome uh, onto uh, the, its neighbors. Uh, and uh, I don't see any uh, possible origin for uh, viruses other than as uh, escaped genetic material from uh, complex organisms, animals, and plants. Uh, and uh, uh, plant organisms, uh, uh, plant viruses, uh, are uh, can, can be taken up uh, like the algae uh, DNA that was uh, found in, in people who had eaten it. Uh, two plant genetics professors at Oregon State uh, who were working uh, with a plant virus uh, to infect the plant, uh, they would put some pumice powder uh, on their finger uh, and a dab of the virus culture, and then they would rub the plant leaves. Uh, the pumice uh, was to break the cuticle and let the virus get into the plant. These two professors uh, working with the same plant virus, just a few months apart, both died of a very rare brain disease, uh, which I think very likely was uh, uh, similar to the, the algae gene that, that uh, can affect the brain. Uh, I, I think these were an example of uh, grinding plant uh, uh, virus DNA into their fingers uh, and uh, uh, having the brain cells take it up with harmful effect. I have a question here related to that. So I guess it, in, in that case, it doesn't make sense to speak of um, like an avian-specific virus or a marine-specific virus or a human-specific virus. They're all viruses of specific origin, but as far as their target, it's really any organism that can make use of them. Is that correct? I think so, or, or that is in a specially weakened condition so that any random junk falls into their cells. Okay. Um, so potentially, uh, do, do you, would you guess like what portion of these viruses that are out there would be harmful to us or would it be, would it be anything would be harmful, even beneficial ones, if we're in, a, in an energetically depleted state? Uh, yeah, it would be the fairly rare virus that would uh, be really useful uh, uh, without a lot of work. But uh, I think our cells uh, can store some of these as potentially useful, uh, even though they uh, might have to uh, undergo uh, uh, further stress to um, mutate it enough to make use of it. Uh, but uh, generally, uh, I think being in, in the depleted, inflamed state uh, uh, makes us susceptible to uh, uh, probably 99% of the DNA we incorporate in that condition is going to be harmful to some extent. Well, that raises a very interesting question about the origin of, of viral pandemics. Why would they suddenly start 
for a specific virus and then let's say like spread around the entire world either either there's no such thing or or maybe uh, or i don't know like why would a specific virus suddenly take hold into humans considering they've been exposed to that to those viruses probably for generations but suddenly we have this pandemic and now it's taking over the world well uh, probably not. <laughs> right, right. Not not the specific one, but <laughs> pandemics in general, to me, sound uh, either not possible and they're being overblown or there's something else going on. Uh, yeah, the coronavirus uh, has been around uh, as long as anyone knows, causing colds. Uh, and uh, the peop- several lawyers are suing uh, state and federal departments of health, asking them for uh, the information uh, of the harmfulness uh, that they based their their lockdown and and vaccine campaign on uh, they have not released any actual data uh, to support the whole pandemic uh, re- response system uh, it's a big vacuum uh, as far as actual science is concerned Right. But aside from this pandemic, I mean, I'm looking at the 1918 flu pandemic. A, a study recently came out, even the the, the Black Death, the plague, uh, the study recently came out that said both of these events, uh, the mass deaths were actually due to to endo, possibly endotoxin overload, stress and like general inflammation, not the actual virus itself. So the whole talk about pandemics sounds very political to me, even if the virus is pathological. Uh, uh, yeah, but that's the thing about the uh, uh, azithromycin, for example, or uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, uh, any of the things that have obvious helpful effects, uh, aspirin, progesterone, uh, everything that is helpful is anti-inflammatory. Uh, the uh, as if the uh, 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 what am I looking for? The, the uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Right. Uh, uh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 it has a profoundly anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, uh, those things are actually uh, not only uh, preventing and curing uh, the symptoms, but they're putting the cell into the uninflamed condition that makes uh, young, healthy people resistant uh, to even catching the virus or or having any reaction to it. Uh, uh, The the system uh, doesn't want to uh, relieve uh, the the suffering and and death of whatever is causing it, whether it's influenza or COVID virus. Uh, They want to sell uh, their their vaccine primarily uh, and possibly uh, a new patented antiviral, but uh, uh, they're uh, turning away from uh, the very clear evidence of uh, extreme success in treating and curing uh, and preventing uh, the symptoms just by concentrating uh, on the uh, inflammation. Uh, associated with it. It's only the inflammation that is killing people and causing symptoms. Uh, And uh, inflammation leads to the uh, uptake and replication of the virus. 
So if, if I'm hearing this correctly, blaming solely a virus for a worldwide pandemic, whatever that virus may be, is insane. Uh, uh, yeah, because this inflammation uh, always causes uh, damage to the intestine. Uh, these are enteroviruses. Uh, they uh, infect the intestine uh, preferentially. And when the intestine is inflamed, it leaks uh, at least endotoxin and increases serotonin release. Uh, and uh, the, uh, those both uh, I- increase uh, clotting and inflammation of the blood vessels, uh, which are uh, currently being emphasized as a, a major killing effect of the, uh, all of these clotting inflammatory blood vessel, brain, lung, uh, uh, multi-system uh, uh, problems uh, had existed before uh, and uh, uh, are, are not specific for this disease. Isn't if they uh, tomorrow on every newscast around America, if they announced that the Roddy virus was out and that it was terribly dangerous and, and gave a, bun- a bunch of um, uh, ambiguous symptoms, like wouldn't that create a similar type of situation? A bunch of people going to the hospital and getting iatrogenic treatment like that. That's something that, uh, again, isn't kind of seeded into the culture of understanding uh, just using something like fear could create a mass amount of illness. Uh, yeah, and then putting a tube in someone's windpipe and mm-hmm. pumping <laughs> air into them, that destroys the lungs very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hospitals were ordered to do that uh, with no uh, rational basis whatsoever. Uh, and uh, they killed uh, just by intubating uh, that many people, uh, whatever they had as a problem, uh, you're going to kill a very high percentage of them. Uh, uh, like the uh, German hospitals, uh, a doctor who uh, insisted on uh, the rational, traditional, mild way of giving uh, oxygen with just a cannula uh, at, uh, at your nostril. Uh, uh, his hospital had zero COVID deaths and an adjoining hospital just as as uh, technically qualified, but following uh, the uh, 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 unfounded recommendations, they had 60% mortality, uh, absolute murder by intubation. Uh, And uh, in general, uh, when you order people uh, to, to diagnose and treat in certain ways, uh, you're going to uh, create the appearance of a, a very deadly disease, which is really uh, 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 the side effects of medicalization. You mentioned there is a factor in the environment that's that's leading to this frailty, general frailty of the population, especially the young people. Um, it's it's probably more than one, right? Or do you have uh, one oh, that specifically you have uh, in mind? Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, all all sorts of things uh, are uh, the last forty. Uh, years have tremendously increased in the environment. Uh, The use of uh, polyunsaturated fats is one uh, anti-energy exposure. Uh, The uh, use of uh, nanoparticles in foods and clothing, for example, uh, and skin uh, uh, preparations uh, are uh, another major change 
tending to promote inflammation, and then vaccinations are intended. The the, uh, aluminum or lipid uh, adjuvant is put in there to create systemic inflammation. And uh, experimentally, uh, you can create allergies in an animal uh, by uh, exposing them in that way. And injecting antigens into the muscle is completely irrational as far as uh, our uh, immune uh, functioning works. Uh, But it uh, reaches that the nerves transport the uh, inflammation-producing substance to the brain, and the brain uh, activates a a system-wide inflammatory state uh, which, uh, among other things, it increases production of, of antibodies, but at the same time, it's uh, depleting uh, your general resistance. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, the vaccine uh, increase corresponds very closely to the rise of, of uh, allergies and, and uh, uh, in- inflammatory diseases uh, like autoimmune. But uh, I think it also is uh, behind this uh, uh, accumulation, Kawasaki disease being very rare uh, and uh, things being added to a a systemic inflammatory syndrome, uh, which is reaching its peak now. So presumably all of these factors also activate the heat shock proteins, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay, we can... uh, uh segue in, into these last bit of questions and then we'll let you go right um so one thank you so much for joining us the, the stream has totally gone belly up we're just audio now <laughs> and some people are saying they can't hear us but anyways we're just gonna keep going um okay so i actually we got a uh, I, I received lots of angry emails about our last conversation and i sent out <laughs> uh please give us co- like co- criticism or constructive criticism on things that we got wrong uh, whether it had to do with the last conversation uh, or other conversations. And I received approximately zero critical questions. <laughs> and so I'm just going to. But but people kept complaining. Right? Yeah, people were complaining, but nobody was uh, offering to cl- to clarify our warped uh, wrong views. And so I found that to be interesting. So um, but this is a open minded discussion here. And so if you're offended e- easily, you might not want to listen to this. I don't I don't know why that would be, but whatever. Um, so my question to you that we were talking about a little bit before the stream started, uh, like if a group of people has a problematic kind of death culture, holy book that overrides our innate solidarity with other humans, animals, et cetera, how can a functioning society be formed or ma- maintain, uh, be maintained rather? I, I, I think it would probably be best to, uh, start with, uh, everything people uh, can do uh, uh, that is uh, uh, not guided by that uh, uh, death culture. Uh, uh, just looking at the, the practical uh, outcome of what you're doing uh, uh, and uh, gradually, uh, if you uh, can shift your attention to the uh, practical moment, uh, then uh, the uh, ideal thing would be uh, to uh, shift your attention to improving uh, not just 
the practice of things, but uh, our understanding that makes practical uh, living and problem solving uh, possible, uh, over, overcoming uh, death and death's variations uh, by uh, discovering uh, the cause of death and its variations uh, and uh, developing uh, curiosity uh, as well as uh, practicality. Uh, and the curiosity uh, is, uh, I, I think, the, the pro-life uh, uh, essence uh, of uh, uh, living behavior, including uh, animals and, and bacteria. So do you, so uh, I might not fully understand, but like if, if somebody is healthy, <laughs> this is going to be very controversial. <laughs> if somebody is healthy, do you think they take a more liberal stance on what a holy book would say, like not take it so literally? Or is that what? Uh, oh, oh yeah. Um, that has been a, a historical trend to uh, uh, treat those ideas as metaphors and uh, not not follow uh, rules slavishly. And then those uh, like like not not uh, cutting out people's eyes <laughs> or cutting off their hands as punishment. Uh, uh, that uh, some of the literal uh, things advocated in holy books uh, are uh, now recognized as as barbarians, even though some countries still uh, apply them. Uh, Georgie, interrupt whenever. Um, okay, so so and and then a, a functioning, healthy society would be resistant, even if there was a faction of people that were fanatical about their specific book. Is that right? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, people uh, who uh, want to survive and improve their lives uh, can just go on about their business. Could you build a, a society around kind of this um, more holistic? Because people often make that argument, or you you couldn't you have to have something like the Bible or whatever to build on top of. Do you think you could build on top of a holistic view of science and have it be I don't know a uh, functional? Uh, yeah, you, you you can find uh, uh, like uh, Wilhelm Reich uh, in in his book The Murder of Christ uh, uh, made great use uh, of. Uh, one of the books of the New Testament uh, to uh, uh, connect his thinking with uh, uh, what's in the Christian Bible. Uh, uh, it was very uh, uh, convincing uh, uh, use of those old ideas uh, in a life-affirming way. And Georgie, cut me off anytime here. And what do you see as the artificial, and we've probably talked about this before, but what do you see as the artificial strug, long-term struggle between humans? Do you, would you classify it as authoritarian versus, uh, anti, versus anti-authoritarian, or would you get more specific with it, or, or how would you view it? Uh, mostly it's authoritarian versus authoritarian. <laughs> uh, 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 the... But behind authoritarianism is a doctrine of of atomistic individualism that sort of defines everyone else as the potential enemy. And starting with, it could come from. Ideas in the Christian culture, uh, Marx, for example, uh, 
uh, adopted uh, largely Christian uh, ethics in uh, designing his uh, new approach to reality. But uh, you can find lots of good ideas in our tradition. You don't have to uh, start from a vacuum. and then authoritarian versus not, not I, we talked a long time ago about kind of connecting everything to nature. Would that have any relationship to nature, like a t- categorizing in a, a authoritarian versus anti-authoritarian, or, or how you, you said authoritarian versus authoritarian, or it's totally uh, for this human construct type of thing? Uh, yeah, the authoritarians have placed themselves, the individual uh, human, uh, against nature, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so they refuse to. Uh, see uh, intelligence, well, it starts with uh, denying uh, full human qualities to women and children because it's only the uh, male patriarch that is uh, truly fully human. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, then that extends uh, animals are are material, uh, not uh, living intelligent beings. Uh, And uh, obviously the same for, for plants and microbes. Uh, they they are uh, defined as the material world, and women and children are uh, uh, mired in the material world to some extent. Uh, and so, uh, getting away from that idea of a material world is an essential thing. Uh, it's uh, you you can't objectify it and say it's. Uh, uh, life, life is is the uh, dominant male, uh, and all the rest is uh, tending to be inert and uh, uh, un unwholesome uh, uh, matter. Uh, if, if you uh, see the the consciousness that is visible uh, in plants, animals, and bacteria, all the way down to their smallest units. Uh, the the uh, uh, coacervation approach is just one way of uh, seeing that every atom and molecule has an actual uh, active role. Uh, there's, there's no random uh, junk uh, operating uh, anywhere in the system. Uh, everything is participating and guided by intelligence, except when authoritarian beliefs intervene to become blind to the intelligence that's there. Um, I have a question. You said in one of the previous podcasts that, uh, at least the way you experienced it, the country kind of peaked in the in the 1950s. You said we had everything. That, that we could that we needed um, and after that things steadily got worse uh, but my question is this authoritarianism has been around for millennia and it certainly existed back in the 1950s some of the more conservative groups these days are trying to make the argument that look this country peaked precisely when it was uh, um, controlled and ran by a patriarchal waspy society um, <laughs> what do you how do you respond to people like that um, J.D. Unwin uh, was a, a professor in England uh, who uh, said that the repressive authoritarian uh, society uh, was necessary for civilization itself. 
that the the nature of of the world is that it needs uh, uh, the the authoritarian uh, dictator to uh, keep the uh, material uh, degeneration process from happening where everyone would would just enjoy what they're doing. Uh, it has to be organized so it has good armies and can conquer uh, the world and expand as an empire. Uh, and uh, that, uh, uh, that was in the 30s uh, that he was writing about that. Uh, the, the process of creating uh, of an ideology uh, uh, of repression uh, it uh, began uh, uh, in, in the at the beginning of the century with uh, neo darwinism uh, and then people like jd unwin and uh, the uh, conrad lorenz in germany charles davenport the eugenics professor in the us uh, uh, and then uh, those uh, were uh, primarily subsidized by the big corporations and banks. Uh, and it was after the Second World War that uh, they really got organized when the, the CIA became uh, the primary agent of these corporations and banks, which had been uh, doing it uh, uh, on a private basis, uh, uh, taking over governments uh, uh, by their own private armies, but the CIA now got things organized and uh, uh, made, made a, a program to take over the media, uh, the universities, the publishing houses, uh, and uh, uh, set the world uh, on the strictly authoritarian course. Uh, so these things uh, have been there all along, uh, but first the corporations uh, uh, establishing relative monopolies, uh, and then the the CIA uh, acting as the agent of monopolies uh, has uh, uh, given it power that uh, became a sort of totalitarian. Uh, I did it from 1950 because that's when the the CIA started the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, which uh, uh, even uh, abstract expressionism uh, uh, was promoted uh, in the art world uh, uh, over uh, any kind of meaningful uh, image uh, painting or sculpture. Uh, uh, it was totalitarian in the sense that it, it penetrated uh, religious uh, publications, uh, art museums, concerts, uh, uh, er everything in the culture. Uh, was uh, being redesigned uh, under the guidance uh, of the CIA. So, so do you think technology uh, has a natural proclivity to eventually degenerate and become a tool in the authoritarian hand to to, to oppress everybody? Uh, yeah, Norbert Wiener, uh, who, who was one of the most important people in designing uh, uh artificial intelligence and control and communication system. Uh, he uh, immediately at the end of World War II rejected any military uh, research support uh, and that knocked him out of 
out of the official line of intellectual development because the whole policy was to militarize our our world and culture. And he is a good person to investigate for the the conflict between the technology that he himself greatly contributed to and the way it should be used under the guidance and control of intelligent human beings. What, what about like a hierarchy in nature? Uh, or somebody would say, well, you know, the, it's human nature to rule over other people. Um, uh, yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, specifically, digital digital technology, because it is the it is the product of this idea of abstraction, and that only ideas and atoms exist. That technology itself seems to have like an inherent seed inside of itself to eventually degenerate and 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 be used for for evil for control. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, I've often mentioned that. Uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, coming from the ruling class, uh, saw uh, what it was doing and worked out the logic uh, that justified it. But as he learned more about it, he uh, saw that his logic uh, was ideological built into it. <laughs> and uh, that he, he did that uh, just before the uh, uh, computer uh, thinking. Uh, the computability uh, of uh, mathematics and logic uh, took over uh, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, specifically designed around that ideology that that Russell had identified, uh, that uh, logic became a a matter of authoritarian reductionism. Uh, Atoms and logical atoms have to be precisely defined before they will work in a computer or a digital control system. Uh, And it's exactly the openness uh, to uh, new uh, uh, connections uh, that that the human uh, use of language and consciousness uh, 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 is the proper way of human functioning. And uh, when you design a, a computable language, uh, you've designed out the human uh, properties uh, that leave it open uh, to innovation. Uh, and uh, uh, Norbert Wiener uh, was one of the people who, who saw that on a technical level. What in the animal world, uh, if if animals on like the sub-Saharan Africa or something were were high up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs? What, do you think they would not express aggression? Um, uh, 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 no, no, not not the ir- irrational aggression that. Uh, 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 when I was in graduate school, uh, uh, the uh, uh, ar- archaeological anthropologists who were uh, identifying uh, uh, ape-like skeletons in Africa and uh, uh, claiming that uh, humanity uh, originated with the use of weapons to uh, bash each other's skulls, uh, uh, that the hunter-murderer-warrior uh, uh, idea of, of human beings, uh, that idea of aggression 
uh, is closely uh, tied to the genetic theory of survival of the fittest, and survival of the fittest was uh, converted uh, to uh, suit the the idea of uh, rule by the elite through military power. Mm-hmm. But but aggression seems to be a natural response in an animal world when the animal is threatened and is not allowed to to retreat. So something similar must be happening in people too, and that would be a I don't want to call it a good response, but it would be a natural response, right? Uh, yeah, self defense. Uh, right. Is, uh, 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 when you're pushed too far, you uh, might might lose uh, rationality uh, in in the way you defend yourself, but. Uh, it's a matter of of uh, uh, survival, uh, and uh, it, it, people uh, will choose survival at that point. But uh, when uh, their survival is assured to any extent, uh, then cooperation becomes uh, the rule, uh, as uh, uh, the, the early uh, biological uh, work of uh, Peter Kropotkin uh, worked out, uh, and. Uh, some of his followers uh, in the later 20th century uh, showed that uh, cooperation all across the uh, evolutionary spectrum, uh, cooperation within species and even across species, uh, is the basic uh, property of life, uh, like like bacteria will uh, give their life-saving uh, uh, genetic material, uh, even the strange uh, unrelated bacteria. <laughs> okay. What do you think of the religious idea uh, when when you get hit on one side of the face, turn the, turn the other cheek as well? That doesn't sound like a, a very good adaptive response, does it? Uh, uh, no. No, I think you, you have to uh, uh, stop the slapper <laughs> and then you can forgive him uh, once, once he's powerless over you. That's what Will and Blake said that, right? Yeah. Okay. So I am just like uh, thinking about my schooling experience uh, and I, I hated always working with people. So what, what's that difference between that kind of cooperation in this messed up environment and, and health status of many people versus what you're talking about? Like you're talking about something more uh, grandiose and bigger, right? Uh, uh, bigger than what, for example? Like what, what would lead a person to, um, uh, or what would be the factors that could sustain cooperation among individuals without the defect of somebody thinking, oh, I'm just going to do it a completely different way, or these people don't know what they're they're talking about or something like that. Just like, or I'm going to exploit their gullibility yeah, for yeah, my benefit. Yeah. Uh, well, governments have created the channels uh, for uh, unfair advantage. Uh, they've built in uh, uh, privileges uh, for banks, for example, uh, to rip off the general public. Uh, and uh, so just changing uh, the rules, uh, getting an even playing field, as they used to say, uh, 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 that would uh, give give a powerful uh, opportunity uh, to develop uh, the constructive uh, interactions. But, but now the governments uh, have deeply and powerfully enforced uh, the exploitation systems. 
Do, uh, I was going to ask you about Marx and the Rothschild connection, but do, do you want to just, have you been following that game? I don't know if you want to talk about that or what, what is the news story that has captured your mind at the moment? What, what do you think is important to talk about? Oh, I, I think the old story, uh, the uh, creative uh, nature uh, of the so-called material world, uh, that, that that's where we should be putting our our energy. Uh, how it is uh, uh, that uh, life uh, has got this far, uh, and what are the processes that will get us uh, out of, out of this uh, current uh, dying condition? And people hate it when I ask you to speculate about things, but this uh, dollar inflation type of thing that that's on purpose. Uh, uh, yeah, the, they invest in stocks, for example, uh, and then uh, to increase the value of stocks uh, means they're taking power uh, from anyone who doesn't own shares in the uh, big corporations. Uh, and uh, so inflating uh, dollar value is uh, uh, ruining anyone who doesn't own uh, one of the uh, uh, systems uh, which is going to survive. Uh, and in the process, uh, they are uh, deliberately killing uh, the small businesses uh, that uh, aren't, aren't on the stock exchanges uh, uh, so that all economic activity is being funneled through the big uh, um, monopolies that they're invested in. Uh, and uh, as part of killing uh, independent business, uh, they are inflating the dollar uh, uh, so that uh, it makes it harder for them uh, with their worthless dollars uh, to ever buy into the monopoly system that is going to take over everything. Do you think it goes a step further than that? I mean, there's been a lot of talk on the news about this, you may have heard of the, the company Robinhood, and uh, they're trying to get everybody to invest, basically. Um, and a lot of people are getting burned in the process. Um, considering the fact that the banks have all the power and all the information, um, wouldn't it be a bit of a nefarious idea there that they have to convince everybody to invest in the stock market and suddenly crash it when they want it and take out all the profit? So in other words, even investing in the stock market um, is not a good idea for the for the regular person because it's the banks that call the shots there too. Uh, yeah, they don't know the the, the rules. Uh, the uh, the giant corporations uh, have uh, computer systems set up uh, so that they can always beat uh, the individual uh, to to the uh, timely sales and purchases. I'm sure they hope that a giant swath of the population will die. But uh, is there anything you've seen recently that uh, makes it more clear of what they're actually going to do with a bunch of serfs that are now dependent on the government? Uh, oh, uh, just being in that dependent condition, it's already increased mortality greatly. Mm -hmm. And so just keeping them in a, an insecure a state of relative misery uh, that they'll uh, just die off sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, George, do you have any other questions? Yeah, I mean, there's there's already talk 
uh, even on Main Street, as they say, of upcoming civil war, countries bitterly divided into two, which, you know, even though they're actually part of the same party, they have nots. Um, but um, do you think that if, if a significant amount of people um, tries to revolt or, or, or take matter into their own hands and try to organize and, and try to topple the system, um, do you think they will go full-blown military-style um, um, dictatorship? They will not hesitate and it would implement oh, that? Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, like uh, the uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, they had uh, 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 cor- corporate uh, controlled but authorized by the FBI snipers ready to kill the leaders. Uh, so they're uh, ahead of us in every way. They brought, uh, but it was slightly different. Occupy Wall Street was still a relatively small political movement. Now, half of the country, at least, seems to basically want out. They don't like that system. They understand. They know that it's killing them. Um, you know, I'm not going to mention any political candidates, but basically, they're saying the federal government is out of control. It's an evil organization, and we will try to go uh, go our own way. Do you think that it, it, if that actually starts manifesting, materializing? Basically, the powers that be will say, you know what, we will not let you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're a majority. Uh, the, the military has the biggest weapons. The, the spectacle is too big at this point, uh, right? Uh, I guess too much of the truth has become known. It can no longer be concealed through peaceful means. I, I think that's true. Uh, that it's... it's uh, uh, they wanted to polarize uh, people to get the so-called right and the so-called left uh, to uh, polarize uh, and think of each other as the enemy. Uh, but uh, now it looks like uh, the much of the Republican Party is standing for what the traditional Democratic Party stood <laughs> for, and the Democrats have appropriated the worst uh, elitism of the old Republican Party. Uh, so the uh, the polarization is uh, largely imaginary, uh, but they're still uh, hoping to capitalize on on that to uh, make make the people fight each other instead of who they should be fighting. Do you think the military will follow the orders to to attack its own people? I mean, most of these people come from fairly um, you know uh, struggling um, regular working class families. Um, why would they? Why would they obey those orders? Um, uh, very, very often, uh, like in the Vietnam War, uh, I think it was the fragging that finally brought the war to an end. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, soldiers started <laughs> killing their were, commanders. <laughs> uh, yeah, the commanders were their their worst enemies. Absolutely. Last question, then we'll let you go, Ray. Um, People thought you were inconsistent with the. We were talking about the Rothschilds and kind of the foothold they, or the, the position they play in all the, these things. And then, well, people were saying, well, Ray has spoken highly of Marx, and uh, apparently the Rothschilds have some uh, specific connection with Marx or, or funding his work. And, and so they thought that was an incongruency. What What do you think about that? Uh, did you ever see his article, eighteen forty three or forty four? before he was a Marxist, uh, article on the Jewish question. Uh, people have called him an anti-Semite because of that article. But in the article, 
he was uh, uh, calling uh, for uh, uh, the, the uh, a petition uh, uh, to the state uh, uh, congress uh, to emancipate Jews. The, the essence of the article uh, was to support his uh, uh, pro-Semitic uh, emancipation of Jews. Uh, his enemies were the Christian state uh, and uh, the, the various uh, 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 the people who, who opposed Marx were uh, the most radical anti-Semites. Uh, and so his article on the Jewish question was uh, uh, to uh, oppose the anti-Semites uh, and call for a general, not just emancipation of Jews, but uh, for a general emancipation of humanity uh, from the world of finance. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know that maybe if he when he worked for the New York Times, uh, if uh, the Rothschilds uh, were invested in the, the Times, you could say they were uh, paying his salary. But mm -hmm. uh, I don't know of any uh, actual support from the bankers to Marx. Great stuff. Thanks for that. You don't re remember the exact, did you say the exact article, 1843? I think that was the date okay. uh, and called uh, 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 on the Jewish question. Okay. So, so one last question for me. There's a there's a recurring theme in on online various online forums saying that the the Soviet revol the, the the revolution of 1917 in the in Russia and then what became the Soviet Union this was entirely a project of the Zionists and that they have been controlling from the very beginning and there was nothing free about this country and on and on and on it goes. But basically it was it was a pet project um, of, of Zionism to kind of create the world, the East and the West of the world and clash it against each other while selling weapons to both sides. Do you think there's any truth to that? Uh, nope. I've read <laughs> for years on the issue and uh, the, the Soviet government was uh, really a mishmash uh, that uh, uh, was steered uh, very, very intelligently by uh, Lenin, uh, uh, ignoring uh, ideology to a great extent, but uh, uh, trying to do something uh, that would uh, end uh, uh, czarism forever and while keeping... Uh, the European and American invaders uh, uh, fr from taking over uh, the country. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Politburo, for example, uh, was made up of people with a bunch of very different ideologies. Uh, and uh, Len Lenin was just able to uh, maneuver uh, 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 an anti-Tsarist uh, anti-imperialist uh, policy uh, where, where the uh, provisional government uh, that they uh, took over uh, was really uh, just an opening uh, to let czarism back in or, or to let the West come in uh, the, the way they uh, went in in uh, 1991. Uh, 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 phony, phony government uh, acting as agents of the West uh, and uh, so uh, the, uh, there were lots of uh, very uh, pro-Russian uh, people uh, who uh, didn't like Marxism at all, uh, but who wanted uh, uh, 
uh, what, what was uh, Orthodox Christianity, for example, was a big motive. Uh, uh, all of these uh, patriotic uh, people uh, saw the revolution as a potential uh, uh, way to get get out of Tsarism and imperialism, but uh, uh, some some extreme uh, uh, ideologists uh, were operating at different times, and uh, the uh, the fact that it did stay free uh, of the West for uh, fifty years or or so, uh, seventy years, I guess. Uh, 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 except that uh, Khrushchev uh, was, uh, in many ways, uh, strongly uh, conceding and and influenced uh, influenced by the West, uh, and then Gorbachev uh, uh, made further moves that that opened it to uh, 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 tie, tie it into uh, international commerce and banking. Yeah. Uh, normally at this point I would read stickers, but I started over the stream and I can't see anything. And so we'll have to do that another time. We, we had a bunch of donations and I'd love to read the names of everybody, but uh, it's not showing up on my thing. So anyways, we'll end it here. It's been almost two and a half hours. So Ray has stayed over time for us. Uh, Ray, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Georgie Dinkov, thank you so much. Thanks for everybody hanging in there with these. I don't even, I don't even know what happened. This is the uh, first time that the stream has basically totally stopped but luckily we have the audio no matter what uh, again Ray thank you so much Georgie thank you so much uh, we have an amazing viewership and listenership and so I'm very grateful uh, thank you guys so much we'll talk to you guys soon and take care be safe okay bye everyone peace okay thanks bye <laughs>